Numbers chapter 20 will be our passage that we're studying this morning. It's difficult when we have so many folks down from out of town and uh, sharing in the meetings with us to keep the continuity, but this is uh, the next stop in our study of the life of the Israelites as they're traveling uh, from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land. And uh, we find ourselves in Numbers chapter 20, and we'll read the chapter together. And it begins. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly to the Lord, the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals." So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, To hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us. How our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells and we will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway, or if I or or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. 
So Israel turned away from him. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. Now when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron thirty days. Father, we come to a very sad chapter in our story of the people of Israel. A chapter marked by suffering, pain, sin, judgment, rejection, forgiveness. All things that we relate to in our lives, Lord. And so we just ask that as we consider this passage before us today, that you would speak to each of our hearts, that we might know how to bring these tragedies and difficulties and problems to you, that you might show your way through them. You might show your path of forgiveness, restoration, and uh, that we might draw closer to you, that we might become more like you in the way that we relate to you and the way we relate one to another. We just commit to you this time. We know that this is your word and we ask you to prepare our hearts to receive it. Lord, would you just please fill me with your words, your truth, that uh, I might adequately convey the lesson that you would have for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory. Amen. The topic for today that comes out of this chapter is the chastening of the Lord. Chastening is not a word that we commonly use, perhaps, but it's a word found in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testaments. And um, really, the word has the idea of discipline, of training. It has a positive, preventive side as well as a corrective side. And uh, unfortunately, um, we get it confused a lot. It's a difficult subject for us. We, uh, we don't have great examples perhaps sometimes and we stumble as, as parents, as friends, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I hope that today we will learn something from the Lord. It's what He had to say to us in this very difficult but serious topic of the chastening of the Lord. And to help us gain perspective on this chapter, we will come back here so you can put your finger there if you'd like, but we'd like to turn, first of all, to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 
is a letter written to the Jewish people in the New Testament who had turned to Christ and yet had been scattered and they were they were suffering as a people because they had identified themselves with Christ and they were having difficulties in their lives. And part of it was simply because they belonged to Christ and part of it, as we see here in this chapter, is because of the working of the Lord in their lives. But as we come to chapter 12, and he exhorts them at the beginning of the chapter to keep their eyes on Christ as they try to run the race that God has given them with their own lives to run day by day. And he exhorts them saying to look to Jesus, verse 2, who is the author and finisher of our faith, because he has endured more than we ever will. And so it says in verse 3, considering him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And he says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed like Christ did, striving against sin. But notice here in verse 5, this is Hebrews 12, 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may become that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I'd like to identify just a few thoughts from this passage as we look. This is this is where we live, isn't it? He gives us, first of all, in this chapter, several reasons for God's discipline or chastening in the lives of believer. And before we get into that, let me just say again, see the passage that we're looking at in numbers is dealing with the children of Israel who once were captive as slaves in Egypt. No way of escape except by the miracle of God. As he led them out and across the Red Sea and towards the promised land. So the lessons that we have in numbers chapter 20 are primarily for those who've been set free from the bondage, children of God walking through life towards their inheritance. That is a picture of the Christian life. The Bible tells us that all of us are sinners, slaves to sin and to the penalty of sin. No way we could escape. Satan, like Pharaoh, was holding us back, having us wallow in the guilt, and there was no way for us to escape except for the Lord Jesus Christ who had came into this world, paid the penalty, died on the cross to cover the full weight and penalty of our sins, and all who put their trust in the work that he has done are able to come out with him out of sin and death, now given eternal life, and the rest of our life is a journey towards our inheritance, which is not found in this world but in heaven. And so the lesson of the chastening of God in the life of a believer is strictly that lessons for the believer. If you are here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior. We're not here to tell you that you need to to 
straighten your life out so you can become more pleasing to God so that you can get to heaven. It's impossible. Just like all the, the, the works and the things that the Israelites tried as they were in bondage in Egypt didn't help them to escape. One of those children just quoted a verse a few minutes ago. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't matter how good you try to be. The wrath of God is upon all of us as sinners until we trust in Jesus Christ. We believe in him and the work that he did for us and the promise he gave that if we call upon him to save us, he will and he'll give us everlasting life. And so if you're here today and, and you haven't done that, we just want to challenge you today. That's where you are. You're still back as the Israelite picture in the slavery of Egypt on a penalty of death abiding upon you until you receive Christ. For those of us who are believers, this passage tells us that when things happen in our lives, there is God is disciplining us along the way. First of all, it says because he loves us. Verse 6, he says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He trains us and disciplines us. He says he does it because we are his sons, because we belong to him and we are part of his family. And so he's telling us, he says he wants us. Look at, well, I'm coming down to the purpose. Verse 11, he says, so that we will it will produce in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness, right? So that we can be partakers of his holiness. He wants to make us more like himself. And so that's why he chastens us. He allows these things to come into our lives to be able to mold us. He tells us we have different reactions we can have to it. Notice verse five. He says, you have forgotten this exhortation. Perhaps we forget why the Lord does it. Perhaps it says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Sometimes we go to discipline our children and they run off and they're more angry and, 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 and uh, upset than whatever set them off at the beginning because they are not responding correctly to our correction. Or perhaps it says here, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. It's possible for us to become discouraged along the way. But those are the reactions that the enemy would have us to wallow in rather than the positive ones, which we already noted. Verse 7 tells us that, um, I believe it's supposed to be verse 9. No, the reaction, sorry. He says, um, we are to endure the chastening. Allow it to come upon us and endure, bear up under it. And also uh, verse 11, which says, um, the positive response is to be trained by it, right? Um, so that it can produce the next thing here, which is the results that God wants to accomplish. He says in verse nine, even when our parents, our fathers corrected us, he says, we paid them respect. God wants to produce in us the proper reverence, fear and respect towards him that he desires us to have in our lives. He says they did it, our human parents, for a few days, for a season in our lives, as seemed best to them. The Lord calls it as he sees it. He tells us the way it is, right? Sometimes when we act as parents or even as elders, we try to do what seems best to us in the moment. But you know, sometimes we're just wrong. We have the wrong response. Today in our passage, Moses had the wrong response. And we're going to look at that. And... Um, but he says it's not joyful when we go through it. Verse 11, no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Nevertheless, for those who will let 
the training happen by the hand of the Lord in our lives through it. He says it will produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness in them. And um, today we made an announcement to receive our brother Ozzy back into fellowship in this meeting. And I commend you, brother, for your courage to come today. I would say that looking at myself, saying I feel very much like this verse says, at times I have thought I was doing what was correct and look back and, and say, you know, should I have handled this differently, that differently? How else should I have done it? But um, anyway, I rejoice to see you here today, my brother, and pray that you will work together with us to find restoration as the Lord wants to see the peaceable fruit of righteousness in all of us. And uh, But the Lord, praise God, it says, He always chastens for our profit, for the right reasons every step of the way. And may God help us to let Him train us, even in this process of chastening in our own personal lives, so that we might share in His holiness, so that we might be trained by it the way He wants. See, that's His purpose. He wants to see us come through the other side and not to give up. And so that's the process that we see happening here in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. But it's meant to be for our learning. And this is very practical stuff. And so uh, I ask you to endure as we go back to Numbers 20 to look at a few details that will help us, I believe, in our own lives. First of all, verse 1 tells us about the position the congregation of Israel found themselves at this time. You know, the journey began here in Egypt and they started out and they did some... They escaped from them across the Red Sea and down into the peninsula. They got the law of God. They came up right, it says, to Kadesh Barnea, ready to enter into the promised land fairly quickly in the first year. But what we read about in Numbers chapter 13 is that they sent spies out from this very place up into the promised land and they saw the giants and they came back with unbelief in the promise of God that he would help them to go in and claim the land. And so they refused to obey the commandment of God to go forward. They rebelled against the leadership of God. Knowingly so. Joshua and Caleb told them so. The Lord has told us to go. He will help us. We need to obey. We need to listen. He will do it. And they refused to listen. And the, the, the chastisement from God was that they would then have to wander in that wilderness region for 40 years. A year for every day that they were out there spying out the land. 40 years. I find that amazing. I'm only 45. Seems like a long time ago since I was five. But that's how long they were wandering in chastisement from the Lord. And this passage tells us now, at the closing side of these 40 years, they come back to this same place. Isn't it amazing to me to see that they've come back to the same place where they departed and they're no closer to reaching their destination? Because they refused to respond to the Lord's training. And it took them this long to recover. Brothers and sisters, may it not take us this long to recover from the chastening of the Lord. When He gives us the command, may we learn to hear His voice, to trust Him, and to obey. But this is where they've come. 
38 years later, and they've come back to the same place they were. They're no closer to entering into the promised land, but you've got to come back if you want to move forward. And so they've come back. But what happens here? It says that they've been wandering these 38 years, and now Miriam dies. Here is the amazing thing in this one chapter. The three people who played such key roles throughout these years in the life of the Israelites, Miriam, She wrote this beautiful song of triumph as they came out of Egypt, rejoicing in the miracle of God. And now she is dying and passing off the scene. And we're going to see later in this chapter, Aaron dies and passes off the scene. And ultimately Moses will do the same because of the chastening of the Lord in their lives. But I, I just trying remember the words of he, Hebrews. Don't forget how the Lord chastens. Don't be despising it and don't be discouraged by it, but endure it. See, this is where they came to. This was the condition that they were in after all this time. And then we see, starting in verse 2, that there was no water there. No water to drink. And they're looking around. They're tired, they're discouraged, they're trying not to despise what the Lord is doing, and they are contending now with Moses, and they grumble against him, they challenge him, and why have you brought us up here? What's your purpose behind all this? We're just going to die out here, there's nothing for us to drink, it's just torture, we should have just died back there. Strangely enough, we've already studied a passage similar to this, haven't we? Exodus chapter 17. Three days after they got out of Egypt, they found themselves in a place with no water. Beautiful example by Moses in verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. It says, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The people complained. They were bitter against Moses. He did the same thing he did the first time, 38 some years earlier. As he fell on his face before God and he brought the complaint to him. I need to learn that lesson. The trials come, the accusations come, the difficulties. We're so prone to grumble. You know, they blamed Moses, but really it was their fault. They could have been in the promised land 37 years ago. But they're still blaming someone else. But Moses, rather than responding in kind at this time, he falls on his face before the Lord and the Lord reveals himself to him. Great example for you and me. What does the Lord say when he reveals himself to Moses? Look at the demeanor the Lord takes towards these people. And by that I mean the attitude or behavior, the stance that the Lord takes towards them. Does he understand the difficulties in our time of chastening? I don't see anger and impatience from God. The thing that we have to remember is this, and I was going to come to this later, but it keeps crossing my mind. I want to say it. This is a new generation. Part of the judgment in the Lord's chastening was he said, every single person of the generation who refused to go in the last time they were at Kadesh Barnea, except for Joshua and Caleb, the two spies. And I would say, except for Moses And Aaron, every other person of that generation is now gone. They're dead. 
They died in the wilderness. And, you know, the Bible says there were 600 and, uh, 603,500 people that were registered amongst that number. And if you calculate 38 or 40 years, that's 40 people a day dropping dead in the wilderness that they had to bury every single day as they traveled along, a reminder of what they were going through. They're consumed face to face with what they're having to live with as they're wandering in the desert. And the Lord says, now Moses, take your rod, you and your brother Aaron, and gather the congregation together and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. For thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. God says, look, they've got a need. I can see that. They've cried out for help. Yes, they're, they're complaining against you, but really their complaint is against me. You just go out and I want you to go back to that rock and speak to it while you hold that staff in your hands. And he says, and you shall provide water for them out of the rock and give them to drink them and their animals. Now, Moses, verse nine, takes the rod from before the Lord. This is the rod that Aaron had placed before the Lord as the people of Israel challenged him some years earlier to say, who made you in charge? Why are you the high priest, Aaron, and not any of us? All of us have been blessed and called by God. And God said, you put those rods out and the one that blooms overnight, it's a dead stick. He'll be my choice. And of course, Aaron's rod was budded with almonds by morning, flowered, produced almonds. And God said, you keep that there in the testimony before me. And now he's taken that that priestly rod, and he took it. And it says, when he gathered the people, verse 10, together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Moses didn't have the heart of God here. He called them rebels. God didn't call them rebels. He takes credit for himself. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Can he do a miracle like that? No one can do a miracle like that but God. He wasn't even saying, must we have God? No. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? There's an interesting verse in Psalm 106 that refers to this occasion. Several of the Psalms in the Old Testament give us a history of the journeys of Israel and sometimes lends perspective on the scenarios that we don't get in the actual narrative. But if you care to read it, it's in Psalm 106, 32. And listen to what it says concerning this moment. It says, They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them. Because they provoked his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Do you catch that? It says, they provoked his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. They were angered at him there at these waters of strife because of their rebellion It says that he was provoked in his spirit towards them and he spoke rashly 
and so that it went ill with Moses. Now, sometimes we like to blame others for our responses, but you know, our responses are our, are our fault, our problem. Matthew 7 says, You see the splinter in your brother's eye? And you want to help him take it out? Well, make sure you look for the beam in your own eye first. The plank, the two by four. I think we have trouble with that. You know, I'm reminded of a passage in the New Testament where Jesus was walking along in Luke chapter 9 and the Samaritans refused to receive Christ and His disciples into their town because they knew they were heading to Jerusalem. And you know, it didn't provoke the Lord. He understood that they weren't receiving Him. But it provoked the spirit of James and John. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just wipe them out? Maybe it would have been right. Just. But the Lord said, you do not know what spirit you are of. The sons of thunder. You know, John was tamed over time. The disciple whom Jesus loved. He walked with Jesus and the Lord was able to to teach him not to let his spirit be provoked. You know, Moses, we see back in Exodus chapter 2 when he saw that Egyptian beating the Israelite, he had the ability to let his anger get the best of him. He was provoked in spirit and killed that Egyptian. And he lost 40 years on his life before coming back to set the people free. And here's Moses. Reminds me of Jonah. God sent Jonah to preach to Nineveh. And he gave the message, but what spirit was he of? Sit up there pouting because they, they repented and were saved and he was upset. But how often perhaps we take that same stance. Moses was out of line here. The amazing thing to me is, look at the end of verse 10 again. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 11. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank God provided God blessed even in that sinful rebellious act of Moses the fact that God does things the fact that God meets people's need the fact that he blesses through the work of an individual an assembly a movement doesn't mean that we're right just means the Lord is merciful and he's gracious to meet true needs And so we have to look within, right? King David said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me. And then he said, Lead me in the way everlasting. We need the Lord to do some introspection in our own hearts and lives. And so the Lord calls out Moses and Aaron here in verse 12, and he says, The Lord spoke to them saying, Because you did not believe me, you did not trust me. You took things into your own hands, right? James chapter 1 says, The wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. You did not believe me, nor hallow me, excuse me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. He did not give proper reverence, holiness to the character of God in the way that he treated the Lord in conducting himself when he smote that rock. See, what we learn from this is that the rock which provided water for them the first time was Christ, 
It says it followed them all through the wilderness. I don't completely understand that. It was a literal rock that they saw, but it was a picture of Christ. The first time he gave water, he hit the rock once. And now he comes back with that high priestly staff representing the work of our Lord Jesus since his death in praying for us and meeting our needs. Simply speak to him. Come to him as our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can come into the throne of grace to find mercy and help and grace in time of need. Come to him. He understands. And that's the picture. That's the stance we see from God. He understood where they were at. In the midst of all their grumbling, he said, just speak to me and I'll provide the water. But Moses destroyed the picture. And so do we. When we respond like Moses did. But the Lord provided the water. Amen. So. Did it accomplish its purpose? I was refreshed by this. Now, for sake of time, we're not going to read, reread the story here, starting in verse 14. But you see, they found themselves on our map at the edge of the promised land once again. But now they're going to enter from a different way. Maybe if I could go, go back here. See, <clears throat> right next door to where they are is the land of Edom. And what God was going to do is not bring them through over here to where the giants were all along. He said, I'm going to bring them around to come in from the other side over the Jordan River. And so in order to get there, they had to pass through the land of the people of Edom, which was right on the outskirts of Kadesh Barnea, where they are. And the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, which are related. See, Esau was the brother of Jacob. And here are the descendants of both of those two men. They're related nations. And so they said, listen, you're our brother. Let us pass through. And he said, no. In fact, he came out with weapons to meet them. Now think of this now. Moses was simply leading them and they're so frustrated with him they're, they're, they're about ready to attack him because they don't have water. Now they're ready to start on their journey now that they've lost 38 years and they can't get through. What kind of reaction do you expect them to have? Praise the Lord. Look at verse 20. They, Edom said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with men and with a strong hand. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. What? Just like that? Do you see change? Were the Israelites still provoked in their spirit? No. The ministry of the work of God by providing the water did its work. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so, it says they traveled, um, came around to the Mount Hor. They, they had to go around the territory. Don't know exactly how inconvenient that was. I don't see the part I'm looking for, Mount Hor, on my map here. But they had to go a different way. But they did it in peace. Praise God, the Lord can produce that in our hearts to move forward, even after all that. Wrong treatment, Bitterness extending for years. And they turned from him, demonstrating the work of God in their lives. However, what we still face in this passage is this thing of Aaron. You know, Aaron had disobeyed with Moses. The two of them, notice verse 11 said, uh, uh, excuse me, verse 12, God spoke to Moses and Aaron. We hear Moses' voice. Moses was the one who swung the stick. Somehow Aaron was with him in this. Maybe it's because he just didn't rebuke him. But they were together. And so God told him, you will not enter 
the land. Verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because he rebelled against my word at the waters of Meribah. So take Aaron and Eliezer. Here's what he's telling Moses. Take Aaron and his son, go up to the mountain, strip off the, the, the priestly garments and put them on his son. He did this privately. He didn't de- demean the office nor the person of Aaron, but there were consequences. This is the part that we don't like. How does God chasten when we, ref- when, 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 when we act outside of his will? Sometimes he just allows the consequences of life to come upon us. You don't study for the test and you fail the next day. That's just a natural consequence. Other times he does very specific things, orchestrates whole different circumstances to arise, to deal with us. I think of how the Lord sent fiery serpents in the wilderness, right? They were grumbling. Those snakes weren't there the day before, but they came out by the thousands the next day because God was chastening them and they did repent. But you know, some of them died because of those snakes. David committed adultery and murder and and he was forgiven by God, but there were consequences that lingered through his lifetime as a result of the chastening of God. And so God wants us to revere, to respect him, to produce that peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. And we can be restored, but sometimes there are consequences that will still remain. So we need to take to heart the lesson that he's giving. We need to know that when he speaks to us, we need to respond. You know, I love that passage in 1 Corinthians 11. If we judge ourselves, we shall not be judged. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants us to to be working together with him in this training process so that before it reaches a climax, he can be cleansing us all along the way. And when we get off path, it's our path of recovery. To repent, to confess it, seek forgiveness from the Lord, restoration from him and anyone else who needs it. And um, it's a difficult process. It's hard. It's humiliating at times. It's humbling. and um, uh, But the Lord says, by those who are trained by it, it, it will, we can share in His holiness. And may God help us to be able to live this out. As was read earlier in Galatians 6, if anyone is overtaken in any trespass, we should seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, lest we also find ourselves tempted. None of us are above anything. And Satan is looking for opportunities, looking for opportunities to provoke our spirits, to get us stirred up in the wrong direction and not responding to his word. Well, they were still on the journey. So are we. The end of the story wasn't written yet for them. And it's certainly not for us. You know, one last verse. First Corinthians 13, five says in the list of qualities of love, love is not provoked. May we learn to know the love of God from him towards us and then from us to those around us. Lord, we thank you for the love you've demonstrated in Christ to send him to take our place on the cross. We will never understand what he went through for us. But we thank you that you've offered it so freely so that any of us, you came to save sinners, that's the only kind of us there are. But we thank you that you never gave up on us. You sent Jesus to die and take our place. And as 
as our Heavenly Father, you seek to work in our lives to train us that we might share in your holiness, that we might become more like you, like Jesus. And we ask for your help. Help us to follow. Help us to love like you love, to forgive like you forgive. And um, to see restoration the way you want to see restoration. And uh, to lead us forward. Finally, they were able to start moving forward. Father, we ask for your mercy regarding the consequences of the things that we have done. That you would help us to endure and to be trained by them. And to keep looking to you. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.